0: Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.
1: I'm Mark Feinsand, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. Sam Kennedy's first job around baseball was selling Red Sox t-shirts and hats across the street from Fenway Park. But the Brookline, Massachusetts native had much bigger things in mind. Kennedy joined the Sox as Vice President of Corporate Partnerships in 2002, brought over by Larry Lucchino, for whom he had worked in San Diego. Over the past 16 years, Kennedy has become an integral part of the Red Sox business and brand, climbing all the way to the position of President and CEO of not only the baseball club, but also of Fenway Sports Management. I sat down with Kennedy at Fenway Park for a lengthy conversation, during which we talked about his first job with the Yankees, what he learned working for the Padres, his decades-long friendship with Theo Epstein, why he hates the word no, and much more. Enjoy this conversation with Red Sox president and CEO, Sam Kennedy. Here with Sam Kennedy, president and CEO of the Boston Red Sox and Fenway Sports Management. Sam, thanks for taking some time. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for being here. So let's go back to the beginning. You grew up in Brookline, Massachusetts, about a stone's throw from Fenway Park, went to high school with Theo Epstein, uh, Were the Red Sox always your your favorite team in sports? I'm assuming they were your favorite baseball team, but was that always sort of your number one? Without a question.
2: And um, Theo and I were uh, were classmates at Brookline High. We were teammates on a very below average baseball team. (laughs) Um, In fact, we were uh, texting uh, videos back and forth the other day. My wife found some VHS tapes from the 1991 Brookline High uh, baseball season. Uh, It was actually kind of fun and I like to give him grief because he spent a lot of time coaching third base uh, I got a little bit more playing time than him, so. He's obviously had a much more successful career than I have, but I like to I like to give him grief just to remind him that it wasn't always this sort of world order of Theo, the most powerful, most important man on the planet, greatest leader in the greatest world, leader right? in the world. <laughs> Thank you, uh, but no, he was uh, he actually had a, a pretty good curveball. He used to he was he was uh, sneaky, got guys out. Um, we had so much fun playing baseball, and he um, uh, we were uh, his brother Paul, his twin brother Paul, and and I were were also really good friends and. Theo was the one that got that internship uh, with Larry Lucchino back in Baltimore uh, in the summer of 1992, and um, we were we had stayed close uh, when he went off to Yale. I was at Trinity and. Uh, I said, boy, if Theo can do this, I can definitely do this, if Theo can do this. So um, that was sort of the motivation for trying to get started with an internship in in baseball. And uh, that's how it all started back in
1: 1993. You also uh, you were the captain of the baseball team. You also played ice hockey.
2: I did, yes. Yeah. Uh, and I still play. You still, That's, do. And you still I, coach. You're right? coach as well? I, I do. I coach uh, both my uh, sons' and uh, daughters' uh, teams as a, an assistant. I'm like the fifth assistant, which consists of picking up cones and <laughs> opening doors and closing doors. Someone's got to do it, right? That's right. Uh, but no, it's, uh, it's a hockey town here as well. And so I, I really enjoy that.
1: Now, most kids, when they're playing high school ball or high school hockey, there's a little glimmer of hope in their mind. Maybe I'm good enough to do this yeah. professionally. At what age did that come to the realization that that was not going to be your future? And if you were going to work in sports, it may be something else. Yeah, uh, very early.
2: Uh, I think um, anyone who uh, witnessed uh, my athletic career, uh, especially my father, uh, or Theo for that matter, could tell you that uh, I had one thing I've had is self-awareness uh, my whole life. And uh, the, I, I had the glimmer of, of college baseball. That was my real dream and hope and um, going uh, the reason I went to Trinity is Bill Decker the Trinity baseball coach was brand new Uh, when he came in in 1991 he didn't really have a chance to recruit too much so um, they offered me a a spot and some financial aid to go down to Trinity and it was uh, it was a dream just to just to be on that team my freshman year go on that trip to Florida and as soon as I got there I realized I am not qualified to be a part of this. Uh, So unfortunately, I did not uh, have uh, a career, a college career uh, in baseball. Um, But just being a part of the team my freshman year was awesome. And it gave me the inspiration to um, stay with baseball and, and then staying in touch with Theo, seeing how he had uh, gotten into the Orioles organization, motivated me, and then we actually had a, a player named Jim Tomford who was drafted by the Yankees, and there was lots of scouts coming around, and I would tap him on the shoulder, and he was throwing 91, 92, good split finger, and uh, I would ask them, you know, how did you get into baseball, and you know, got advice from, from these guys coming around a Division Three baseball game, um, and it, it sort of made it uh, real to me that you could actually work in baseball when I saw these scouts coming to Trinity games, and um, I also grew up next door to Peter Gammons, who's a good friend of my father's, and watched him go to work at Fenway Park every day. So you just had that glimmer of, uh, of hope that it could become a reality. Never in a million years did I ever think I'd end up back home with the Boston Red Sox, but it's been a uh, dream come true. Now, one of your
1: first jobs was also involved with in the Red Sox. You sold t-shirts on way. way
2: I did. I, uh, I worked uh, for the D'Angelo family of uh, Brand 47 fame. Um, at One time, many years ago, I actually had to pull out pictures uh, from my mom's uh, albums to prove to Bobby and Stevie D'Angelo that I actually worked there. I said, we don't even remember you. Uh, it was the summer of 1987, uh, 1988. I was hoping to work uh, here inside of Fenway as a, in the concessions department. Couldn't get a job there, but uh, they hired me across the street, and I sold uh, tchotchkes uh, and hats, T-shirts, and just loved the idea of being around the ballpark. And I think the greatest gift any parents can give their child is the the message to pursue your passion and my father was an Episcopal minister my mother was a teacher Uh, I knew I did not want to as a preacher's kid I did not want to follow in my dad's footsteps Uh, and I certainly didn't have the patience to become a teacher like my mother Uh, so I sort of found my own way which was with baseball it was always my first love.
1: Now I know as somebody who's worked for the Red Sox for a long time this isn't something you probably talk about a lot your first job in pro baseball was in the Yankees ticket department, right? You were <laughs> an intern for the Yankees. That's right. What that, uh, What was that first experience of actually working? for a big league club like?
2: Yeah, well, it started, um, a- as I mentioned, with that, you know, how do you get into baseball? This is, I sound old. This is before the Internet, uh, before email, before cell phones. Um, I'm your age, so it, I understand. It, yeah, you know. <laughs> it, was, it was the early 1990s. Um, I had just been cut from the Trinity College baseball team, and um, it really motivated me to, to pursue that sort of next step in baseball. Um, so I wrote uh, every single uh, team's general manager manager, uh, president, owner, any information I could cobble together from Sports Illustrated or newspaper articles, uh, track down the the addresses of all uh, the ballparks at the time. I believe there's 28 uh, clubs and uh, just getting uh, rejection letters back in my mailbox in college with, you know, the logo of the Chicago White Sox or uh, the Boston Red Sox or the Kansas City Royals and you know, dear, dear Sam, you know, we're sorry, we don't have any internships available. Just to get a response back was motivation to sort of keep going. Um, and the Yankees uh, wrote me back and said, call uh, Jack Lawn's office. At the time, he was the chief operating officer. Um, Jack's office is responsible for the internship program. I called, scheduled me for an interview, and I went down, and and, uh, and I got the job. I got the internship, and um, I didn't even know what that really meant uh, other than then I would do anything, and they assigned me to Frank Swain uh, in the ticket office, the old head of ticketing for the Yankees. And um, I, I just ate it up, being in that environment every single day. I'd never been in a sports facility without any people in it, right? And I'll, I'll never forget that feeling of of walking in by the big bat at Yankee Stadium, and and without anyone in the in the ballpark walking under the concourse, down to the ticket office, behind first base, and uh, just thinking to myself, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And uh, it was a great experience. I bothered the you-know-what out of them to get the opportunity to go back the next summer. Worked uh, under Debbie Tymon uh, in the marketing department. She was nice enough to assign me to the old-timers game. It was quite an experience. Volunteered for them in the wintertime to work their fan fest uh, at the old uh, convention center um, in Columbus Circle. Uh, And then I just kept going back. So they had me back summer of 94, summer of 95. And then obviously we had the, the work stoppage in 94. That was great. Experience. Um, I was uh, had a memo on my uh, chair when I got in that morning. Said. Dear non-essential personnel, (laughs) (laughs) that
1: makes you feel good, right? If
2: you're receiving this memo, you should not come to work uh, tomorrow. Uh, And it was that was a a wake up, you know, a a wake up call. I said, "Boy, I never want to be non-essential personnel." personnel. Um, And I was lucky to be going back to college uh, that September. But it was really great experience that stuck with me. Just uh, the impact that um, Mm -hmm. a a labor issue can have in, in baseball. It affects every single person in that stadium not just the players, but the people in the front office, the ticket takers, the concessionaire workers, the security people, and that that was something that stuck with me. Um, But I really owe uh, the Yankees organization um, my career, because I got that first break working for Jack Lawn and then Debbie Tymon, and Debbie Nicolosi and, and lots of people in the Yankees front office, Brian Cashman, Tom May, Tim McCleary, just these, these folks that were um, willing to take a few minutes and talk to me and offer me uh, some advice um, was really a great experience. And I tell people getting in as an intern as young as possible is the key because you start to build that network uh, at, an, at a very early age. It's amazing hearing
1: some of your stories. They, they remind me of my own Experiences. I remember getting those rejection letters. And, you know, look, Lou Lamarillo wrote me back yes. a letter from the yes. Devils. Yes. Or the, my favorite one, I had, had done a resume to the NFL. And I got back, you know, we don't have anything at the moment. We'll keep your resume on file. And it was signed by Roger Goodell, the VP wow. of Labor, Labor wow. Relations. And at the time, that name didn't mean anything. And, right. I don't know, five, six, seven years ago, I was going through old letters, and I found it. I am like, wait, I have a signed letter from the commissioner of the NFL telling me, we don't have a job for you. That is
2: so cool. And I remember
1: walking in the Yankee Stadium, 2001, my first year, covering the Yankees into a... Empty stadium and feeling that exact same. I'd never been in an empty ballpark before. It was. Uh... It,
2: it's something you never forget, and it's you. You realize that you cannot take anything for granted. We're, we're all so fortunate to be in the the sports uh, and entertainment business because at the end of the day we're passionate about it and we're so lucky to be in an industry that we're that we are passionate about that's the key and in in anyone's professional life is to find that passion and, and go after it with everything you have and today you can now find the roster of the front office you can seek out different departments sure. learn about people on the internet um, back then it was the general manager uh, the president maybe the team owner uh, and it's hard those are very very busy people so I appreciated getting back just a to- just a letter from those high, high-level folks. But now I, I encourage people, you know, seek out the director of community relations or marketing or director of finance. And, you know, you can get into a, a track that interests you uh, by reaching out to some of the more sort of mid-level managers or junior-level people in an organization, and that might be just as effective as writing a, a letter to, you know, Brian Cashman or Theo Epstein.
1: So after interning to the Yankees for a few summers, uh, you graduated from Trinity in 1995, and you went to work for a couple of radio stations in New York, WABC and WFAN, where I also interned in 1995, <laughs> wow. Uh, wow! selling ads. So, yep. Were you still trying to figure out what path you wanted to take at that point, or did you know you wanted to work in baseball, you just had to wait to find that opportunity? Yeah, I, the,
2: the latter. I, I knew I wanted to work uh, in a baseball front office, um, my experience with the Yankees uh, was so impactful because I realized from spending time with Brian Cashman and Tom May, Tim McCleary, Gene Michael um, that I I wasn't as interested in the day-to-day baseball operations department as I thought I was before I started working there. I think everyone thinks about baseball, well, I'm going to be uh, the next uh, Brian Cashman, Ben Charrington, Theo Epstein, Dave Dombrowski, you know, be a general manager. What I Came to realize is that I was in just enthralled with the behind the scenes sort of how this all fits together. You know, how does the stadium operations department interface with the ticketing group, with the community relations department, with baseball, uh, with corporate sales? And um, so I, I started to realize that the. the the business of sport really was my passion and seeking to understand how that um, how that all works. So I was lucky to have an internship uh, while I was at Trinity uh, with the, the Hartford Whalers and then with a CBA basketball team, the Hartford Hellcats. Uh, one of my great mentors, Paul Danforth, who's now the head of CAA Sports, was at the Hartford Hellcats at the time, and he asked me, you know, what, what do you want to do when you, when, you, when you graduate? He was only about six months older than me, right. but I, in my mind, he was, you know, 50 years old, um, and I said, you know, well, I'd really like to be in media relations, PR, I'm so interested in baseball, I like writing, I would like to travel with the team. He said, no, you want to be in sales. Let me, the salespeople rule the world. Let me tell you, you want to be in sales. <laughs> uh, like a true salesman Yes, exactly. And so I followed his advice and, and started to talk to Debbie Tymon and people at the Yankees about how do I... Uh, get uh, a role in sales. The Yankees didn't have anything full-time, uh, but they were nice enough to connect me with WABC, and I started selling the Yankees play-by-play broadcasts with Michael Kay and, and John Sterling uh, back uh, in the day and uh, had a little bit of success there. My direct boss got recruited to go over to the fan, a guy named uh, Dan Lynch, who's now at the New York Football Giants worked there. Uh, And then uh, I ran into Theo at Shea Stadium. I was selling Mets broadcast. He was an entry-level employee in the media relations department for the San Diego Padres. And he said, you got to you got to get out here to San Diego. It's unbelievable. We got a great thing going. There's a, a guy running the sponsorship group who's looking for a salesperson. Uh, you'd be perfect. And so Theo connected us. And uh, ultimately, I, I went for the final interview with Larry Lucchino, who read my resume uh, or didn't read my resume, picked up my resume, and immediately shredded it to pieces and said, "Yankees, you know, get the hell out of here." <laughs> so it was, he wasn't uh, even with the Red Sox, yet. yeah, that's right. And um, he did at the oriel background. He, he did, was, he, and he had a few uh, a few interactions Interactions with Mr. Steinbrenner that I think he uh, uh, was, w- was famous for. So anyway, Larry hired me, uh, and um, uh, so Theo and I were sort of reunited out in San Diego in 1996, and uh, we spent our day jobs were our day jobs. I was in the sponsorship group. He was in um, media relations, uh, and then he jumped over. Uh, Kevin Towers offered him the opportunity in baseball, but then we spent a lot of our time uh, helping Larry and, and Charles Steinberg and others with the campaign for the new ballpark and that was really transformational because I got to understand how the public uh, sector can work with the private sector in, in a public-private partnership to really transform uh, an urban area in the United States which, which is what petco did out there and so uh, it was a it was sort of like getting your your MBA and, and your JD at the same time working in that environment um, and then of course 2001 rolls a- along and our lives uh, changed forever obviously so but the San Diego experience uh, I will uh, take with me forever. Uh, Theo and I uh, joke uh, even to this day about how, gosh, wouldn't it be great if we could somehow end up somehow back in San Diego just because we have such fond memories of the city, the baseball team and it was a special time in our lives we were all young and didn't have a lot of responsibilities um, and the weather's better than and, boston and, and Chicago. <laughs> The weather is better it really was a, a special special time we had a great group of people larry lucchino i think belongs in the hall of fame because of what he did in baltimore and san diego and boston but also his his um, commitment to identifying young people uh, mentoring them, showing them, giving them responsibilities uh, that maybe they weren't uh, ready for, uh, and he has a a tree of people. Now, the way Theo does uh, and the way others do in in baseball, um, that was something that he really focused on. Every single full-time position was treated like gold and wanted to make sure that people that came into the organization were vetted by many, many different people and take that collective wisdom to make judgments about the full-time employees because every single person Person needs to contribute. So uh, that was a really special time.
1: I would have liked to have seen your face as a 22-year-old when Larry oh Lucchino God. rips up your resume in front of you. you figure, oh okay, God. thanks for everything. I'm going to walk out of here Well, now. thankfully, <laughs> I, I had
2: played for uh, Ron, Ronnie the Bear Vincenzo at Brookline High, was my uh, ice hockey coach, and he, uh, he is the closest person in my life to Larry Lucchino in terms of being a tough mentor, boss, coach. Uh, but, but no, Larry was, uh, could be tough, but he, he's also a bit of a softy, I like to tell people.
1: So while you were with the Padres, uh, you had been promoted to Executive Director for Corporate Partnerships and Broadcasting. While you were there, the Padres tripled their sponsorship revenues. Um, probably not coincidentally, in 1998, they're in the World Series. Mm-hmm. How much does on-field success translate into off-field revenue? Yeah. It, it, it's everything. And
2: I, and I think one of the things that... Um, Executives in the sports industry um, realize, at least I think the good ones, realize that everything we do has to be about the product on the field on the ice on the court on the pitch in soccer um we'll get to Liverpool yes we'll get (laughs) yes it it is all about the product and you know I learned that lesson I remember Frank Swain one day in in the, the bowels of Yankee Stadium we were walking around and I said geez he said what do you want to do I said well maybe marketing he said kid let let me show you the marketing department you know I'll show you where they where they sit and he walked me out through a vomitory and pointed out to the players taking batting practice he said that's our marketing department don't let anyone tell you different and he was right he was right our fans care about the players and their stories and the product on the field Um, so what we try to do here and what we try to do in San Diego is make it about the product on the field and invest heavily into that product through uh, scouting, player development, free agency, international signings. You have to be totally and utterly committed to the baseball product or you're going to be in big trouble. Um, so we, we really in, invest heavily there. And that's 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 what I realized. And I think that holds true whether you're in the hockey business, the football business, soccer business, baseball business. You have to put the product first uh, all the time and invest in the people making those decisions and, and the people uh, on the field. That—that That is your product at your
1: core. You mentioned 2001. Obviously Larry comes to Boston as part of the group that buys the Red Sox. Uh, that 01-02 offseason, he brings you with him, hires you as vice president of corporate partnerships. Aside from moving up the ladder, what was it like to come back to Boston to work for your childhood team?
2: Surreal. Surreal. To be a um, uh, in San Diego to have Larry Larry left in July. Um, and it was, um, we, we knew he was going to do something big in baseball. Um, he was working with John Henry. They were talking about uh, the possibility of uh, Anaheim at the time. Uh, they were talking about uh, the Boston opportunity. Uh, and then it got serious when they connected with Tom Warner. And together, Tom, John, Larry, working with Major League Baseball, uh, coming up raising enough equity uh, to meet the the bid that they needed to, to, to reach to acquire the assets of the Yawkey Trust uh, took from that sort of summer uh, all the way through the end of the year, and the deal officially closed February 27, 2002, um, and when they were announced as sort of the new owners. Here we are, 17 years later. John and Tom are still referred to as the new owners. That, that's <laughs> what we do in Boston. Uh, but there was that time period uh, from when Larry left uh, until the deal became official that Theo and I were in hourly contact with each other. Was <laughs> uh, you know trying to figure, look on Boston.com, trying to understand you know what's going on. What's it to, because as much as we love San Diego. We knew if we had the opportunity, uh, both of us, to to come home to Boston to work for the Boston Red Sox, um, we were on the next flight. Uh, So uh, we had some issues uh, getting out of our contracts out in San Diego. There's obviously baseball rules, tampering rules. We needed to uh, do things the right way. Larry had to get permission from John Moores uh, to talk to me and Theo. And my parents kept saying... They need permission to talk to you <laughs> were what, 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 what who were you? Who are you yeah exactly and so uh, initially permission was denied because uh, there was some there were some issues there there's some bad blood um, and ultimately uh, thanks to John Moores he relented and allowed uh, us uh, a seventy two hour window to speak with Larry um, and I think it took about point. Two seconds. I was going to say, uh, probably didn't uh, need he, seventy-two he, hours, yeah. right? And Theo, uh, we we met together, and Theo actually <laughs> negotiated both of our agreements and wrote both of our agreements. <laughs> uh, he was my lawyer, uh, it's the and, plus of and, having and, a lawyer, yes, somebody, and right? drafted uh, the first contract between uh, me and the Boston Red Sox. And um, I'll never forget uh, talking to, to John Henry uh, on the phone and Tom Werner on the phone from Larry's office. Um, you know, Larry was obviously the CEO, but he wanted to make sure. John and Tom were on board and then I don't know 12, 13, 14
1: of us ended up following Larry from the Padres uh, to Boston. We've seen a lot of great old ballparks closed, torn down and replaced by these sparkling brand new stadiums, yes. <laughs> most of which are wonderful. Yeah. You guys have pumped a lot of money into refurbishing Fenway Park. Yeah. How important is it to you guys, to the community, to Boston as a whole to keep Fenway Park relevant and viable? I mean, it's basically down to you guys and Wrigley as the last last two stand ups.
2: Well, it's, um, I think it's a result of John's experience as a. Uh, he started he also started at the Yankees, so he and I have that uh, in common. He started as a limited uh, partner uh, investor in the Yankees, then he went to Florida, acquired 100% of the Florida Marlins. Tom and Larry were out in San Diego, obviously. Uh, so when you come to Boston and you come to Fenway, uh, you realize that this is the opportunity uh, of a lifetime, and you realize that Fenway Park is situated in the heart of the city in a great neighborhood. And when we got here in 2002, uh, we wanted to take a year, two years, three years. Uh, to determine if the ballpark itself could survive another generation 30, 40 years. And I mean survive structurally, was it sound. Um, So we we went to work immediately on examining the viability of Fenway. Uh, It was in 2005 that we uh, affirmatively announced we were going to stay and and renovate and preserve, protect, and enhance Fenway. We've got about 425,000 square feet here at Fenway, which is probably half the size of most ballparks modern stadiums maybe less than half the size Uh, so we fight for inches when we add new seats when we add new information in terms of video boards Uh, but the overriding mantra has always been do no harm you know make sure you ferociously protect the tradition and history that that is Fenway while creating new revenue streams through, through seats, through sponsorship, through new and different events at Fenway. Um, and each and every year we've been able to uh, do some new and different things uh, so we can turn around and invest those revenues back into the product on the field. Now, some years we've made better decisions than others in investing in that product, uh, but the, I think the, 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 the Henry Warner legacy will be um, – the ownership group that won World Series Championships, but also the group that uh, saved Fenway Park and and helped create this, this neighborhood uh, in, in a great city of Boston. Because what's happened outside of us uh, is nothing short of uh, miraculous. Billions of dollars of investment into the Fenway neighborhood as a result of uh, this sort of uh, renaissance that's taken place at Fenway. Office space, retail, residential. Uh, this was a very quiet uh, neighborhood uh, when when Theo and I were growing up. A mile down the street, we used to um, buy and sell and trade baseball cards in Kenmore Square. I'd ride my bike through here, and it was you know it was quiet, not a lot of retail, no life, no activity. If you walk outside now, three hundred and sixty-five days a year, it's a very busy, vibrant, bustling neighborhood. So it's really transformed, uh, and and we're starting to think now the next. The first 15 years have been about Fenway and, and preserving protecting the ballpark itself. Now we're starting to look outside. We've been strategically acquiring parcels in the neighborhood, um, and so we're trying to think about appropriate real estate development in the neighborhood to continue to enhance the whole Fenway ecosystem. We call it Fenway 3.0, uh, sort of the next uh, iteration of, of Fenway's development.
1: So as a guy who grew up a mile from here, what was it like – to go through October of 2004 (laughs) in general and also to be able to share that with you.
2: Yeah, it, it was it was um, so special, and you have to go back to uh, 2003 and remember what we what we lived through, and and really in many ways you have to go back to the 70s and the 80s, and of course 1978. I was a little too young to really let Bucky Dent ruin my life. Aaron Boone, um, on the other hand, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and really, for me, you'll appreciate this as a uh, as a, a tri-state area native. The 1986 season just really reinforced to me that that the Red Sox, you know, we, we were we were cursed. I mean, you just felt it, you know, after watching what happened, and especially what we did against the Angels, and then and then how we lost to the to the Mets was just um, it was it was inexplicable, except for the fact that there must be a curse. So we, we get here in and, and, uh, 2002, we don't make the playoffs. Um, 03, we have a, a magical ride. Theo and his team assembled a great group um, and Aaron Boone happens and then we get back in 2004 and we go down three nothing we lose game three 19 to eight it's like you know, there they go again so it just was un- unthinkable that we could mount that type of, of comeback uh, but to do it here uh, at Fenway with our families being here um, was just remarkable I barely remember the World Series. I mean, you remember every moment of that Yankee Series, because growing up here, it was all about beating the Yankees. It really wasn't about anything else. So the, the World Series became a little bit of, a, of an afterthought after beating uh, the Yankees, but um, people ask me, what was your favorite moment? Well, it was Father's Day 2005. Um, we were, uh, Theo and I both gave our rings to our dads together uh, that Father's Day, so that was a really cool moment. Um, and for both guys, you know, To to watch us play really bad baseball and the fields of uh, Brookline uh, to then be at Fenway that that was just really special. So it's I I feel sort of like the 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 last one standing here because we uh, have had so many people that have been such an important part of the Red Sox modern history uh, have gone on. Uh, But as long as you know, no matter what happens to to those of us in management. With John and Tom here, the commitment to this building and this team uh, is going to be there. So as a Red Sox fan, you, you feel very grateful for it. And it's also made us hungry for more. You know, we've won three World Series championships, and we know what it's like uh, to, to go deep into October, and we, we want more. We're hungry for more.
1: You talked about Fenway Sports Management before. The client roster, you mentioned some of it, the Red Sox, Liverpool Football Club, Nesson, Roush Fenway Racing. Boston College, MLB Advanced Media, Deutsche Bank Championship. In looking at all of that, the one that stood out to me above all else was LeBron
2: James. (laughs) It stands out to a lot of people in Boston. It just seems odd, right? Yeah. yeah, First of all, how did that
1: relationship come about, and how do you keep tabs on... All of it. I mean, it's a very wide-ranging roster.
2: Yeah. Well, we have a a supremely talented uh, executive, our managing director of of Fenway Sports Management is a guy named Mark Lev, who worked for the Celtics for a long, long time, and he he runs the business for us day to day. Um, And since uh, the transition with me and Larry Lucchino... Uh, 99.9% of my time is spent on on Red Sox matters. So Mark and his team do a great job of, of running that. The LeBron deal was fascinating. We um, uh, had launched Fenway Sports Management in 2004 and you mentioned some of the clients, the activities we're involved with. I'll never forget, we made the Liverpool acquisition. Uh, Larry gave, I was working directly for Larry Lucchino at the time, he gave me a bit of a sabbatical to spend time with John and Tom on the Liverpool acquisition. It was about five Five or six of us involved at the deal team, Uh, and we had closed in October of 2015. It was a a very dramatic sale process. I'll I'll spare you all the details. We closed on October 15th, um, and uh, we just gotten back to Boston. I'll never forget. Tom Werner calls me and he says, "Hey, uh, what do you think about um, uh, taking on LeBron James as a client?" And I said, "Tom, we just..." Closed on Liverpool. We've got all these other clients. He said, yeah, but LeBron James is one of the most important athletes in the world and one of the biggest brands. Uh, and so to Tom had a personal Uh, connection he was friends with LeBron and Maverick through a a mutual uh, acquaintance and he knew from them that they after it was after the decision uh, and it was a it was a a time when they were looking for new uh, representation on sponsorship and marketing rights Uh, and they asked Tom for suggestions and he said what about Fenway Sports Management so anyway that's the type of mindset and mentality that Tom and John have where most people would say you know time out, mercy, I need a break, they're always thinking about what's next, what's next.
1: LeBron had never been shy about his Yankee fandom. I know. Was that ever an issue? I I did notice that. It was an issue. It was an (laughs)
2: issue. Our our beat writers uh, were on to that right away, uh, as you can imagine. Um, And, you know, it's interesting. It was... Thankfully, we had some success in '04 and 2007, and so we had some credibility in the market. But around 2010, when we acquired Liverpool, there was definitely a lot of blowback. You know, are you guys committed to Boston and the Red Sox? Are you committed to Fenway Park? Why are you buying a soccer team four thousand miles away in Liverpool, England? Uh, all fair questions. So we just had to walk the walk and, and keep uh, investing in the facility and into the team, uh, and then winning again in two thousand thirteen helped. And um, I think you're seeing this trend with ownership groups. People are getting involved in, in multiple sports assets, and, and it's sort of like a stock portfolio. You know, you have uh, blue chip uh, teams and, and venues, and, and hopefully people running them, uh, and. And John and Tom have really, and their partners, uh, along with Mike Gordon, who's our president of Fenway Sports Group, um, the three of them and their investment partners have built a very, very special company.
1: You, In, in a couple of the roles you've had even before you became club president, when you were uh, executive vice president and chief operating officer, you, you oversaw ticketing, corporate sponsorship, broadcasting, marketing, social media, advertising, Fenway Enterprise, a lot of different hats. Yeah. Is there one that you like more <laughs> than others? Is there one part of the job that you say... That's the one I really that gets me up in the morning. I'm excited to go go do that.
2: That's a great uh, question. Yeah, it has to be sales. It has to be. There's nothing. There's so much rejection in sales, <laughs> even when you represent an incredible brand like the Red Sox or Fenway Park. Um, the reality is, you know, you, you may make 250 phone calls and like sending the letters that we did for our internships, right? You either don't hear back or you get rejected. Uh, so when you close a deal, when you make a sale, it is the greatest feeling. And I think that you know a lot of people shy away. Oh, I'm not a salesman. You know, no, I'm proud uh, to be a salesman. Um, I think people that have the ability to build relationships in an authentic, real way, connect with other people, and make a deal that's a that's a win-win. That's what business, that's what sports, it's all about. It's all about relationships and connections. So I get really fired up uh, when I walk into our ticket sales uh, department or our sponsorship sales group. It's really important. And one of the executive skills that you have to learn and develop is uh, is to recognize that, if you don 't have a, a experience or strength in an area, you better have the best possible people uh, in those areas so those areas for me would be law, finance, operations, human resources having grown up in the, in the sort of revenue generating track you need to make sure you get people more experienced smarter than you are uh, to, to oversee those areas of the business and then give them the resources they need, and then back away and let them do their job. And the same holds true with, with baseball operations. I mean, I'm not going to uh, go down and, and fill out a scouting report or, or read an uh, uh, analytics report on a certain player. I mean, I see our job as, as giving baseball operations everything
1: they need to be successful. How involved are you or have you been in the past in the baseball side of things?
2: Well, I've become uh, very Im- involved be- because of the relationships. Um, you know, Dave Dombrowski is a, uh, a lifetime, lifelong baseball executive. He's an exceptional communicator. Uh, we built a very strong relationship. Um, he and I work together on the budget, establishing sort of what are we going to spend on players. My, my responsibility uh, to, to ownership is management of that budget, Dave, obviously, uh, is our baseball decision maker, but the baseball budget is a key driver of our overall club and company budget. Um, So we've got a a great working relationship. Uh, I am not making baseball evaluation uh, or judgment on uh, J.D. Martinez, for example. Dave is... The one saying this is the player that we should sign, and then the two of us are talking about the finances and how it fits into the budget or doesn't fit into the budget. Um, So it's been a a great relationship, Um, and that's always sort of been my style. I saw that as an intern for the Yankees with how Gene Michael interacted with the rest of the organization, how Cash did it after him how Kevin Towers interfaced with the front office, how Larry Lucchino managed things. Um, Look, there's always going to be a a natural sort of uh, push and pull because you're talking about spending a lot of money, Um, but thankfully, we have an ownership group that is committed to spending and gives us the ability to go out and generate those revenues. uh, So it has to kind of all go together. And that's one of the things that uh, we all learned from, from Larry Lucchino, is you have to have an organization really humming on all cylinders, whether it's, you know, you don't want to put more weight on the baseball department or the ticketing department or the human resources department every department has to, to work uh, exceptionally well together and function at a high level or you're not going to win a World Series championship. So we all we, we try to make sure that no um, you know, all departments are created equal and everyone has a, a seat at the table and a voice in, in these big decisions. And ultimately, at the end of the day, my job is to communicate effectively throughout the organization and cue decisions up for John and Tom, the, the big, big decisions, uh, because at the end of the day, ownership uh, is extremely important involved here uh, with uh, all the big
1: decisions facing the Red Sox and and facing Fenway Sports Group. You were at the forefront of the Take the Lead initiative that saw all five Boston pro sports teams work together uh, to help combat racism at the city's venues. How did that all come about?
2: It it really is a a credit to uh, a few community leaders in town. Uh, Tanisha Sullivan, the head of the NAACP, uh, Marty Walsh, Mayor Marty Walsh, our mayor, Linda Dorsina Fori uh, folks that we called on uh, in the wake of the Adam Jones incident we had we've we've tried for 16 years here to walk the walk make Fenway as inclusive as possible i think we've we've made great strides uh, but we recognize we have a long way to go and when incidents like the Adam Jones uh, situation happen where a, a player uh, is subject to racial taunting in the outfield it's just completely unacceptable we tried to deal with it uh, the best we knew how uh, John Henry Tom Warner and I met with with our players. uh, John and I met with Adam, um, but we wanted to make it a sort of sustained initiative. So we examined our own policies, the policies at the other sports venues. Um, We've started a career fair. We we want to try and encourage diversity throughout the front offices. We want to make sure our facilities are are open and accepting and inclusive. Uh, And 99.9% of the time, they are. uh, But in 2018, things happen, and you need to be mindful of it. Uh, So we're very proud of it and uh, we, we think that it's just a, a great thing as we move forward and that we want everyone in Boston to feel a deep personal connection to all of our teams because that's what that's what the city's all about.
1: What is the biggest challenge of creating the next generation of Red Sox fans and of baseball fans in general?
2: Well, I think that that we are uh, as an industry uh, onto it, and and I say that because we've got to do uh, three things. We've got to get kids into our ballparks. I fell in love with baseball because I was blessed to be able to come to Fenway Park either for free because I used to come up and ask cops for tickets and they'd take them from scalpers and I'd sort of sneak in, or I'd come in on my dad's clergy pass for two bucks and. Stand or, and, and then sneak down to a seat. Well, we've got to get kids, and not everyone has that experience. I grew up a mile from here. We've got $9 tickets. Any student, anywhere uh, in New England, middle school, high school, college, you can come to Fenway Park every single game for $9. So we, we don't want price to be a barrier. The second thing is we, we need to be aggressive about participation. So we're funding our RBI program. We're a huge sponsor of the base, which is in a more sort of elite high school level program right here in Roxbury. Um, so we've got to get kids participating. Baseball has an amazing story to tell. Participation actually has increased the last two years, 2016, to 2017 Major League Baseball put out the data. That is a hugely important data point as we look to get boys and girls playing. Uh, we're up to 22 and a half, 23 million uh, kids playing, um, and it dwarfs most of, of the other sports. You hear a lot about lacrosse, but if you look at the numbers, baseball is actually has a huge number of kids playing. We need to grow uh, that uh, uh, number. And then finally, we have to connect with kids where they are, and I'm pointing to my, my iPhone and my mobile device. We're now all streaming games and market which is critical Uh, kids consume baseball content in a very different way than we did growing up sitting for three and a half four hours doesn't happen but streaming being on the mobile devices so kids can watch them on the go that's that's what we need to do so we just we never we can never take for granted that kids are going to uh, just immediately take to baseball we have to work at it each and every day um, and and I, I really give credit to Major League Baseball uh, Rob Manfred and Tony Petitti they're, they're on top of this they get it uh, they're encouraging the clubs to be aggressive in this space and and we all need to be on the same page and do that as we move forward.
1: Last question for you this spring You called this the golden era in Red Sox baseball. Why is
2: that? Well, it, it starts and ends with with winning. Uh, you know, John Henry, Tom Werner uh, say this all the time, but we're here to win championships. And um, that was something that we didn't have for 86 years. And um, I, I believe uh, that, again, you'll look back on this era in Red Sox baseball, and, of course, we're some years we're going to fall short, uh, but there is a commitment to winning here. Uh, there's a commitment to being uh, an active participant in the community There's a commitment to saving uh, Fenway, enhancing Fenway, uh, and making the Fenway neighborhood great. Uh, But it starts and ends with winning, and the commitment is there. um, And we're we're really proud to be associated with an organization that, that wants to play October baseball each and every
1: year. Sam Kennedy, Red Sox president and CEO. Thanks very much for your time. Enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Great to be with you, Mark. Many thanks to Sam Kennedy for taking the time to sit down for this week's episode of Executive Access. For our next episode, we'll switch over to the other side of the rivalry, as I'll be joined by Yankees Vice President of Baseball Operations, Tim Naring. We'll discuss his playing career with the Red Sox, his life as a scout, and why one New York baseball columnist once referred to him as, quote, something of a latter-day stick Michael. You can search for executive access on Apple Podcasts, Art19, or wherever else you listen to podcasts, so be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about executive access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinsand.